just want to uh, welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly colloquium, our weekly seminar series. And to remind you that next week we won't have class. It's fall break, so don't don't get signed in and don't come on over to Poe because we won't be here. And then the following week we're going to have Dr. Sumit Do um, attend colloquium. So uh, just as a reminder, today I'm very excited to have... Uh, Sorry, Dr. David Berube, I want to make sure I pronounce correctly your last name. And he's the Professor of Science and Technology Communication at NC State. And he'll be talking to us today on hazard communication. So Dr. Berube is a research professor and GES fellow. He teaches graduate seminars in risk, fear, disaster, and climate change science communication. And he's received over $20 million in grants over the last two decades studying science communication. He wrote, in 2006, he wrote uh, Nano Hype, and he has edited another book on uh, pan pandemic communication and resilience, which just came out now in 2021. And he just finished writing a book on lessons we should have learned from Zika. And will that be coming out in 2021 as well? 2022. Okay, he is the director of the Public Communication of Science and Technology Project and Social Science Director of the Research Triangle Nanotechnology Network involving NC State, Duke, and UNC. And he's also authored some white papers on social media and risk. He's a member of the Society of Toxicology and Special Government Employee for the Board of Scientific Counselors for the National Toxicology Program. So I'd like to welcome Dr. David Barubi today and thank you for joining us. I'm going to change the screen here. Thank you. Thanks. Had surgery, so I'm going to sit down. Thanks. Okay, come on, little mousey. Here you are. I want to talk about hazard communication and expert biases. It's uh, something that's been bothering me for a few decades that I want to share. And um, this is how it all started. I got a grant from the NSF uh, to do a project on intuitive toxicology. Uh, wrote a series of articles that just happens to be one of them. And um, just finished pandemic communication and resilience. And in both these projects, we focused on the communication that occurs between experts and inexperts. I like to use the word inexperts because it seems to be less patronizing than all the other terms for this. Uh, also, the new book has a, a major section on expert-to-expert -expert, uh, biases. Yeah, I talk about acronym HELL. Uh, I'm on the Board of Science Councils for the NTP, which is part of the National Institute of Environmental Health and Safety and the National Institutes of Health. We get projects assigned to us by the FDA and the EPA uh, in terms of uh, tell us what's wrong. And so what ends up happening is we bring together a bunch of researchers and the researchers engage in uh, mostly uh, a lot of bench work, some uh, in epidemiological work, and my component in here is uh, the communication of this, both public and uh, expert audiences or inexpert audiences. The National Toxicology Program is right down the road. You should know it's an NTP. Uh, and uh, they deal with uh, hazardous substances. Uh, we just got a, uh, a major uh, assignment to do bisphenol A analogs, not just bisphenol A, because the analogs are coming in from industry, and we have to validate whether they're just the same, the same, or different. There's this term which I always loved, it was cognitive miser, it came from Fisk and Taylor in 1984, there was psychology. The theory of cognitive misers is that the human brain tries to solve problems in the simplest and straightforward ways that it can, and it conserves energy. Uh, it's widespread in social cognition theory and in social sciences. The hypothesis is perceivers rely on simple rules to make judgments, engage in careful, thoughtful processing. Only when necessary, the cognitive advisor is a view of information processing that assumes human mind is rather limited in time, knowledge, attention, and cognitive resources. Uh, these shortcuts include the use of heuristics, which we'll talk about, uh, schemas, uh, stereotypes, and other simplified perceptual strategies. Uh, for example, people tend to make correspondent reasoning 
uh, reasoning are and are likely to believe that behavior should be correlated to and representative of stable characteristics. Uh, what is a heuristic? It's a rule. Um, there's two theories on, well, there's two theories that are not incompatible. Montier's theory is that it's hard-coded by evolutionary processes, and uh, most of the cognitive psychology world says it's learned, and there's no reason it can't be both, um, though there's very few people who advocate both. I think they're just two separate schools here. But, um, you know, basically... Uh, the reason you feel uncomfortable when you're watching a Zoom presentation and you see a giant face in front of you is because you're hardwired to be afraid of giant faces as animals creeping into the face of the cave. And it's these type of theories Bautier was talking about when he did his presentation. Uh, Fisk and Taylor are responsible for this, uh, but there's a lot of other people who have taken uh, this ride along uh, this, this area of discussion. This is the primary uh, uh, person that uh, who has uh, taken the work that has been done in this for a ride and ended up with a Nobel Prize, which is kind of cool. Um, he argues that uh, our world is made up of folks that try to think not as naive scientists, but just as uh, reasoning people. And he argues that there are two systems we use. One is very quick, fast. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's just fast. And sometimes you learn to be fast after you've done the task many, many times. So there's, you know, there's no implicit wrongness about system one. Um, system two is much more analytical and much more rational. And for people who study communication, you can see this duality in a half dozen different theories. Right? Um, is the one who got the, the prize for it all. Uh, Jay Forrester, who was a pioneer in computer engineering and system scientist, is credited for being the inventors of magnetic core memory, said, The image of the world around which we carry in our head is just a model. Nobody in his head imagines all the world governed country. He, well, back then they would use he, he has only selected concepts and relationships between them and uses those to represent the real system. And so we make sense out of the world around us by using things like heuristics in order for us to have a sense of what is happening in the world. Um, the word uh, risk is a strange term uh, because it's, uh, it's a social construct. It's not really uh, a scientific one. Um, that's the scientific definition of risk, right? It's a hazard modified somehow. I put times because we could have that debate as well, but let's save that for another day. But hazard is implicated by probability of and, and, and uh, exposure. In other words, it's the, this is the dosage theory. You see it's associated with poisons other chemicals. Um, this is the risk that social scientists use, right? Social scientists use the same basis, but they've added another component to it, which is the component of outrage, which is probably traceable to Peter Sandman, and uh, it often includes, includes, in addition to outrage, things like dread and worry. So that also appears in the literature. Uh, here's a nice picture of Dan Kahneman. Um, the cognitive biases, biases that he uh, introduced was in a paper by him and Amos Tversky in 72, grew out of his experience with innumeracy research. In other words, we're, we tend to be a very innumerate culture. People don't handle numbers very well. Uh, so Tversky and Kahneman demonstrated several replicable ways in which human judgments and decisions differ from rational choice theory and they explained human differences in judgment and decision-making in terms of heuristics. Heuristics are the shortcuts, and these shortcuts in turn can produce biases. This is the mother of all biases, right? This is the one that has most been uh, attacked by folks who try to explain why people tend to disagree and think unbelievably, incredibly foolish and stupid things. So it's like the present system. Um, it's called the affirmation or the confirmation bias. It explains things like attitude polarization. This is where you have a disagreement between two parties, even though they're both exposed to the same evidence. They just read the evidence differently. Uh, belief perseverance, where beliefs persist after the evidence for them is shown to be false. Uh, what ends up happening is they don't listen to that information. They listen to the contrary information. Think Fox News versus MSNBC here, and you sort of get the answer. 
Uh, the irrational primacy, primacy effect is explained here. This is the greater reliance on information encountered early in a series. Right, when you get information early in a series, you look for information that agrees or corresponds or collaborates or corroborates that information. And illusory correlation is when people falsely perceive an association between two events or situations. It happens all of the time because publics do not understand the difference between correlation and causation. This is the, the slide from hell which I usually just showed to students and go, this is the slide from L. This is the list of all of the different heuristics and biases that, for which there is literature, which is objectively validated. So, I mean, this is the research that's been done. So this takes out all the anecdotes and takes out all the stuff of uh, supposition that you find in the press. And they're very entertaining, some of them. Uh, my favorite's the IKEA bias, which is uh, in the middle of this thing. Is we tend to think things we build are better than things that have been built for us. Um, what ended up happening is, as soon as this theory uh, gained some weight in uh, cognitive psychology and then in communication sciences, we got all these codexes that started appearing. Uh, this is Desjardins from 2018, one of the nicer of the codexes. So what it does is take the effects or biases, explains it with an illustration or an example. And that's definitely uh, a, a nice piece of, uh, of... This is the one uh, that is probably the best of the literature. This is by Benugian, uh the third. Uh, it's also in 2018. It is the Cognitive Bias Codex. Uh, oh, by the way, all the sources for all the stuff that's in the lecture today is in a reference folder. If you email me, you get it. I'll just send it to you. But you don't have to like, try to find all this stuff. I'll, I'll tell you exactly where to find it. The reason this Cognitive Bias Codex is interesting, if you notice, it's color-coded. All right, there's a gray section, and there's a green section, and there's a sort of a turquoise section and a blue section. And the reason they did this is they, they claim, uh, Manugian uh, claimed that, you know, there, there are like four big conundrums in the universe. And each of these conundrums seems to be associated with a set of biases and heuristics. As we get this, so you can actually begin to see what the codex looks like, you see what the four conundrums are. When things are not making enough sense, when we feel there's not enough time to figure it out, when there's too much information coming at us, or when we're not sure what we need to know or remember, which seems like the plight of the student. You know, and, and then each of these conundrums Manugian put into this codex, and the beauty of it is it makes it a little bit easier to communicate to student populations and professional groups when, it, when lecturing. The reason we do this is because if you think, this is this weird Swiss cheese model, and uh, this is the best picture I could find out of it, and Australia does from Wiki, which was nice for a change. Um, um, the Swiss cheese model pretty much says, when you're looking at hazards and you're looking at how, uh, how, how, how bad the hazard might happen to be, the problem we often see is that these biases, if they line up in just the right way, can lead to some really bad things. And one of the illustrations, if we had more time, would be to discuss uh, the uh, Twin Towers in New York, never thinking that a plane could be used as a bomb to take down a building. What happened in that situation is all the hazards lined up in just the right way for us to get a blank, like we didn't see this thing coming. Drawer, Ezekiel Drawer uh, is, is an intro. He's a professor at, uh, out in London. He came up with this strange source. It's an analytic chemistry, which is a whole other issue. These are the eight sources of bias which contaminate sampling observations, testing strategies, analysis, and conclusions. Drawer argues in this article that this also applies to uh, experts. You know, so if you start at, at, the, at the bottom, you get the most fundamental ones, and you get up to the top, and you get the more specific. Uh, the ones that are human nature at the bottom are the ones we've normally seen associated with inexpert audiences. They're just human and cognitive factors, and they're personal factors. Bad day at the office. Education and training. Why did that professor tell me that was true when she didn't know that was true? 
you know, and all these other things that climb up here, which can impact. Uh, but it's important to understand that these uh, different sources of bias can exist, and you need to be able to recognize and expose them because they tend to be a bit problematic. Because expert to expert biases is a huge problem that no one wants to admit. Um, experts demonstrate, and this is from Drawer as well, I love this table. Um, experts uh, often think quite fallaciously about who they are. These are some of the fallacies experts embrace. Uh, number three says experts are impartial, not affected because bias does not impact competent experts doing their job with integrity. They're totally convinced this is true. And in reality, there's very little evidence that that is true. Um, and number six is my favorite. I am aware that bias impacts me and therefore I can control and counter its affect. I can overcome bias by mere willpower. They're sinus. So they're not vulnerable to any of this sort of stuff. Um, the other issue that crops up is uh, uh, you probably know about Dunning Kruger. Dunning Kruger is the theory that says uh, that uh, folks, poor performers in social and intellectual domains, are largely unaware of how deficient their expertise is. Their deficits leave them with a double burden. Not only does their incomplete and misguided knowledge lead them to make mistakes, but these same deep deficits also prevent them from recognizing they are making mistakes and other people choosing more wisely. So that's a fundamental theory. And if you're a bad judge of what other people will find funny, you're most likely to think you're a great comedian. If you perform poorly on tests of basic grammar, you're more likely to overrate your facility with language. The skills that engender competence in particular domains are often the same skills necessary to evaluate competence in that domain. And so that's the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a bit uh, problematic. Who are the experts? Well, in the old days, it was everyone answered the phone. You know, someone would need an expert, they would call community college or university and say, I need to talk to somebody about this. And whoever answered the phone became the expert, which has been problematic because may not be the expert. Today, it's whoever answers the email who is the expert. And a lot of experts don't answer their emails. This is from an article I wrote. Trying to get a bench scientist to leave his laboratory to address an audience composed of people who are not in the bench scientist discipline is difficult to do. They tend to be very busy and generally uncomfortable speaking to audiences unfamiliar with their work and their discipline. Another paragraph in this article I wrote. Those experts who volunteer to speak are sometimes untrained to do so or tell science stories near the very edge of their expertise, expertness, given their amount of free time, often highly rare, for a hard-nosed bench scientist. While there are exceptions, they tend to be remarkable. I mean, the people who claim to be experts are the ones we should be really most concerned about. Now, here's five expert biases I'm playing with right now. And the reason I wanted to do the presentation is I have to do it at the National Toxicology Program. So this is the first run through, and so we can see uh, we can see what's going on. Uh, here's just four of them: cursive knowledge, authority bias, overconfidence, information bias, and belief bias. Sweet, <laughs> what language is this? Cursive knowledge. Well, obviously this isn't going to contribute to cursive knowledge, but cursive knowledge is this belief that there it's all everybody else's problem, right? The reason you have a difficulty communicating is not because you're a bad communicator, but the audience doesn't know anything about what you're saying, and they cannot decode what you're saying and make sense out of it. So it's always their problem. It's a curse of knowledge. I had a great quote. I can't find it these days. When I started writing Nanoheim, I subdued, wrote me a, 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 a letter back then, because it was like right at the beginning of the email was powerful. And it was basically like, I don't know why I have to deal with these public people. I mean, they don't know what's going on. They haven't taken their, their science classes. They don't know mathematics. It's ridiculous. It's just a gross waste of my time, which was kind of nice because he eventually became uh, a division director at the National Science Foundation. Curse of knowledge. Oh, this one worked out. Authority bias. You know who this guy is? That's Wakefield. That's the dude who wrote the article that connected autism with inoculation of MMR uh, 
a vaccine. Um, authority bias is the tendency to attribute greater accuracy to the opinion of an authority figure and be more influenced by that opinion. Now, Milgram studied this when he did his, his prison experiments, but a good example of this is why we can't get Wakefield out of people's minds. You know, this has been with us for much too long. Uh, he's been kicked out of all these professional organizations. I mean, he's been ostracized. His research has never been replicated. And we still have the anti-vaxxing movement hinging on this guy. And they just keep coming back to him. And there's this big controversy about a movie, which we talked about in one of my other classes that came out recently, which justifies his actions. And um, people just um, believe this dude. He's an authority, man. What else could you ask for? Well, I wanted to put this in because um, authority bias is really powerful. Everyone seems to prefer people in authority over people who aren't in authority. And there is this gender literature out there I wanted to cover that people implicitly prefer male to female authority figures, male to female leaders, non-feminist woman to feminist. There is an exception. You find this when you look into the literature that this bias tends to disappear and even reverse if you can get a woman to step in the male domain and challenge the stereotypical expectations. You've got to have that component in it. But it's an example of how these biases need to be seriously identified so we can figure out uh, what they're all about. Because when I was first taught about gender authority bias, no one mentioned the bottom part of this slide. <laughs> I just heard the top part of the slide. And so did the women in my class, and they were quite offended, actually. And, uh, yeah, probably right. Overconfidence bias. Well, the picture on the right is taken from the stock collapse in 2008. Overconfidence bias is the tendency for a person to overestimate their abilities. It can lead a person to think they're a better-than-average driver or an expert investor. Overconfidence bias leads the clients to make more risky investments probably uh, something they should do. Uh, this is pretty straightforward. This is not very complicated. More and Polly A did some of this research. And when you, when you email me and I send you all the sources, you'll have all the stuff if you need it for anything you ever want to work on. Information bias is when this belief that says, you know, I, I'm going to just get information and information and seek information. There's interesting literature on this. Information bias actually makes researchers over-research subjects before they go to the fore and actually present findings. Guilty. <laughs> you know, I've done this a lot. Um, people make a better prediction of choices often with less information. More information is not always better. The American Psychological Association was actually going to describe... Uh, a mental health uh, disease associated with doctoral students who can't stop researching to finally poop out the dissertation and what mentally happens to them, right? And, but that's what the information bias is all about. It's like, let's get some information. Hey, I know how to do this. I can get information. And so it, you have this feedback that takes place that you, I'm good at getting information, but you eventually you got to stop and go, it's this time. And that's incredibly hard to do. Um, an example of this bias is believed that the more information you can be acquired, the more uh, to make a decision, the better, even if that extra information is relevant for the decision. And having fell into uh, the black hole of Zika in my research, how, how long have we known each other, Jennifer? Quite a while. <laughs> I mean, like four or five years. Yeah. Now, granted, I had an illness in the middle of this, but still, you know, five years to research Zika is a hell of a long time to do it. And I probably should have stopped a few years ago, uh, but I didn't. So I know a hell of a lot more about Zika than I need to know, which is, leads to some weird phone call with Brazilian scientists, which is a whole other issue. Belief bias. Belief bias, the tendency to judge the strength of arguments based on the plausibility of their conclusion rather than how strongly they support the conclusion. Uh, is, is a difficult problem. Thomas Kuhn wrote about this in Scientific Revolutions. This is why paradigm shifts take so long. 
you know, there's just belief bias built into the system to such an extent that what ends up happening is to get any significant change is an incredibly challenging thing to do. Why did I want to do all this stuff? Why do I want to do all this stuff? Because I spend all my time with experts these days, or people who claim to be experts. And what ends up happening is we get into these discussions about how the public doesn't know what's going on, and we just need to tell the public more about what we're doing, and the public will be much happier and better. And when we do that, the world will be a better place. In reality, that's probably not the problem. So, I mean, if you've never read anything in this literature, this slide is for you. It's a brand new book, came out in 2010 by Friedman. He's a science writer, nice read, it's not a killer, it's only $22, and if you're clever, you can probably get it used for much less than that. If you want more of a challenge, this is a strange book. This is Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes by Jonathan Howard. Howard is from NYU. He looks at critical thinking in medicine and tries to see what biases are impacting medicine negatively. And so he's looking at doctors as a subset of expertise. Uh, and you would never know that if you saw this book covered, by the way. And when I was talking to my, because my, I worked with Springer, when I was talking to my buddies at Springer, I was like, this is one of the best books I've ever seen Springer published, but the title is terrible. Because you would never know that this book is this incredibly deep on expert bias. Two other books that are on your reading list. Uh, the one on the extreme left by Tom Nichols is called The Death of Expertise. This book approaches the anti-rationalism uh, uh, trends that we see in America today and also in Western Europe. It talks about the blurring of lines between fact, opinion, and, and denialism in the face of scientific findings about things that range from climate change to vaccination. Um, he says, quote, Americans have reached a point where ignorance, especially of anything related to public policy, is an actual virtue. The death of expertise. To reject the advice of experts is to assert autonomy. It's a way for Americans to insulate themselves and their increasingly fragile ego egos from ever being told that they're wrong about anything. It's the new declaration of independence. No longer do we hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold all truths to be self-evident. Interesting book describes, I think, what's going on in the world today to some degree. Uh, the other book I found really interesting is Dan Kahneman, again, the guy who wrote Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and is the System 1 and System 2 guy, got together with Cass Sunstein from the University of Chicago, who is responsible for Nudge, which is the way to move people in the right direction by giving them positive reinforcement in many different ways. Came up with this thing called noise, uh, and he added noise as a value when trying to determine why uh, often we have a very difficult time explaining and documenting to uh, audiences uh, what's really going on. Because in addition to all these biases, there's also a lot of noise. And in our culture, our noise is the multiple sources where people get information. You know, I mean, no doubt that the internet, especially social media, has been hugely problematic the vaccine controversy. So why does everyone be a few, uh, seem so confused? I, it sort of comes down to three things. The first thing is biases, right? And, and that's where I'm, I'm, I'm currently playing. I mean, the, the, the first half was the biases that we find among inexpert audiences. And that literature is rich and full and interesting, but I think it's been done. Um, biases between experts is something that has just been rejected by expert experts. They just don't want to believe they aren't experts. Uh, noise is, every time you make a decision, there's going to be noise. Uh, something that interrupts the decision-making process. And that's directly out of the new book by uh, Kahneman and Sunstein. And uh, I'm sort of digging my way through that in addition to all the other stuff I'm doing. And there's also some system errors out there which we obviously can't talk about today. Like uh, info glut is a huge problem. It's just that there's too much information. People can't just get on top of it. I mean, this 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 Zika thing is a good example of info glut. It's just I mean I have four thousand sources for this book. You know I mean I did the Brazilian literature. I did the 
Asian literature. I mean, if, if it's in there, I got it. And of course, the book's not just about Zika anymore. It's about the lessons we should have learned from Zika. And had we paid attention to those lessons, we might have been able to make our way through COVID with a little more ease. So, how do we solve for this? Well, I think we solve for misinformation on two ways. On the extreme left, we solve for it by making sure that when experts are talking to inexpert audiences, they do it with great care. Um, I incredibly hate the field of crisis communication having been there. I don't like it. It's hard to sleep at night when you work in that field. Because what you generally do is help a company get over some incredibly bad decision they made. And um, I prefer consensus communication, which is what I do when I do risk communication. I try to work with experts to make sure when they speak to the public, they speak to the public in the way that is least likely to trigger biases. The other component is experts have got to realize that, guess what, there are problems here. And they're found throughout the literature. The article that, that is going to be associated with this PowerPoint slide and the presentation at the National um, Toxicology Program uh, has a very large section in it talking about, uh, oh, this is another quote that, that I, that's found in that article, that all experts available, some are insufferable and obnoxious, and some are overconfident and arrogant. And you know that's true because you met them. Right? And it's a real problem in the real world for us to deal with. But the expert, the expert problem seems to be getting worse because we've got people who've decided they're going to research these folks. We're finding out we can't replicate the studies that they originally published in most situations, which is incredibly problematic. We're finding out that regardless of what they're saying, it's getting published, but it's getting published in proprietary journals or it's getting published in vanity journals where you could just pay a big enough cut a big enough check and you can publish anything you want to publish. That's a possibility as well. And there are a handful of other problems that experts are beginning to have to confront. And that's a good thing because it means the experts will do their jobs better. And if we're going to convince the public they shouldn't believe things they shouldn't believe, we just can't keep blaming them. That's not working. It might even be the right thing to do, but it's not working. So the answer has to be to integrate experts into the process. And so the expert-to-expert -expert communication, the expert-to-inexpert -expert communication needs to include, oh, I don't know, people who study communication for a living. And as I always tell uh, my uh, um, the companies I've worked for in the past uh, and uh, some of the government agencies I've worked for in the past, they're really cheap, right? They don't charge a lot of money. It's not like buying a 1.7 million transmission electron microscope, right? For 1.7 million transmission microscope, you could put together a squad of communication theorists that could take you to the next level. And uh, they just have been reluctant to do this because they're all personed by people with terminal degrees. And they think they've done it. That's it. There's nowhere uh, left for them to go. I want, uh, these are, uh, you know that further research thing you throw at the bottom of your, your, your articles? <laughs> these are the ones I'm looking at. Whether experts or anyone for that matter can be educated or trained out of their biases. I mean, I'm trying to play with this. There's a wonderful literature in analytics coming out of intelligence gathering, which is in there, which I've been playing around with, and I actually get some money from the NSA to do some work there. Next, whether experts share many or if not all of the biases demonstrated by inexperts in their determination of risk. I wonder if they share them all. Uh, and if they don't share them all, that's interesting because that means they found a way to avoid one. And that's a good news, and we could probably develop something off there. Uh, whether experts not only have shared biases within experts, but also a set of biases unique to experts is a whole other one. Because what's been happening in the past is people have taken the biases they found with in experts and said, do these apply to experts? But in reality, the question might be, is there a set of other biases that inexpert audiences don't have? that expert audiences do have. 
right? And people aren't studying that as well. Finally, whether all biases are shared between inexperts and experts, and it is the power of the bias that is differentiated between inexperts and experts, which I also think is a viable question, is that if we do share them with experts, maybe it's the power of the bias that we don't share. Like we may have a higher probability of demonstrating this bias than an expert might have or vice versa. So this is where the further research on, the, on this is going to go. This, I presume, is going to be a grant proposal. I just haven't figured out what to call it yet because it's still a little bit esoteric. And so I need to build on it. This is me. This I'm at the Hunt Library. I'm on the top floor with Jennifer. We play up there all the time. It's a wonderful place. And I made a note that says, if you email me, I will send all the references you to building the PowerPoint. So you don't have to try to find them on your own. Because some are rather obscure. Like, come on, analytic chemistry was where I found a lot of this stuff on, on, on expert biases. Not the primary source I would turn to for that. And then that weird book from Springer. I wouldn't have looked there either. And just yesterday, I got an email from a colleague of mine at George Mason who said, have you looked at the research on forensic experts? And I said, no. He says, yeah, there's really good evidence that forensic experts are not very expert, that they have the real problems. They can't tend to agree on anything. They can't replicate any of the expertise that they're bringing. One of the reasons trial, trials have such difficulty. So that's me. This is hazard communication. It's not risk communication, right? Hazard communication occurs between experts. Risk communication occurs between experts and inexperts. So risk communication is a social construction. Hazard communication is not. Hazard communication is a calculation. We find out what the hazard is, and then we find out what the dosage and exposure is, and we can tell you how bad it's going to be. That's the difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Garubi. I think that we're going to have you maybe stop sharing your screen, and we're going to go also to our online audience, and we'll ask people to raise their hand if they'd like to ask a question or leave a message in the chat. And I see that we already have... Um, no, so some right behind you. Yep, up and as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go quickly to to Zach Brown. Just I saw his hand hey there Zach. first. I'm gonna ask to unmute, and then we'll Dylan. You'll be next. Hey, hey, David. Great muted. Uh, nice to. Oh, can you hear me? No, I can. Okay, great. Thanks for the talk. Um, so I was thinking about the slides from hell. Uh, I was pondering that for a little bit. By, by the way, my uh, favorite one that was I saw spotted on there was the, is the peak end rule, which is probably the one that I have used in my daily life more than any other, and was based on, uh, I think that was in Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow that talks about it, uh, is based on patients' experiences during colonoscopies, if I remember correctly. So, fun, fun little uh, read. But, um, but anyway, the question I guess was looking at all of, I mean, there is this, this huge explosion of all these biases that you went through. And at the same time, I mean, I think you mentioned this or alluded to it, but there's, there's been a replication, replicability crisis, as you know, a number of folks have looked at in social science research and with social psychology research and also behavioral economics. Um, and so I, what, I actually was just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. And I think you know, it kind of, to me, it kind of reflects some of the biases, of, uh, expert biases of the type that you that you were discussing in the context of people actually researching biases. So, I'd just be interested in your your thoughts on that. Well, the last count is 188 biases that are between experts and inexperts, and there's only about a dozen that are between expert and expert. The reason there's so many of them is a combination of a bunch of things. One. Some are redundant. They're just redundant. People are discovering stuff that has already been discovered. Um, and they're publishing in journals that don't really care. You know, if you can't get it in nano letters, you publish it in the Journal of Carbon. You know how the game is played. And so that's, that's taking place. Um, the other issue we have is that this is the um, bread and butter for graduate students. Uh, this is easy work. This is type of work where you can actually do an experimental study, gather some data, put the data together, get it published. And so we have a lot of MS students and a few PhD students who do a lot of work in this area. 
And so you get this proliferation of publications that take place. The other thing which is weird, a lot of these are contradictory. I mean, the optimism and pessimism bias cannot coexist, right? Unless there's an optimism bias for some people and a pessimism bias for other people, but that seems to be, you know, a continuum type thing. And so um, one of the, that's also one of the reasons why it's really hard to replicate this stuff when you're talking about contradictory heuristics and biases, right? And that's a huge problem. But the thing I, I, I'm most concerned about experts is it, I, I'm reticent to go through the 188 and pull pieces I think apply and then be satisfied there. I want to find the ones that aren't on that list that might be particular to experts because that at least is an area for me that, it, while as a, as a researcher, it's, it's entertaining. And as a scholar, it's something I'd like to do. I, don't, I mean, I just don't want to redo, redo, redo. I'm past all that. So, I mean, but that, you're right, you're right. It's just, it's, I love the, the slide from hell. I just, you know, my students look at it and just scream. And I teach common social change. They just go, you've got to be kidding. And I said, no, we're going to talk about heuristics and biases. Of course, I never talk about more than 20. But, you know, the, the 188 would be a bit much. And that's the wiki count. So, you know, I'm not sure. I put one or two on wiki just for the hell of it. They stayed. Thanks. Thank you. Kayla, would you like to ask your question and then we'll get to Jason's question? Yeah. It's funny, just one one small comment, but when the slide from hell came up, I was kind of like, oh, they all fit on a slide. That's that's not as many as I thought. <laughs> um, but anyway, I wanted to ask about noise yeah. um, and how that... So I guess my interpretation of what noise would be would be like you know, just a lot of, like, background, unclear sort of, you know, information, you're not sure how to use it or what's what to listen to. How does that differentiate from InfoGlut? Um, I'm not through the whole book, but I am through the section on, on, on why it's different from bias. And when I looked at the section on noise and did a quick preview before I came to... Uh, the class today. I mean, the thing that seems to be the concern on in in in, in this version of noise is uh, noise is uh, all the standard old stuff we talked about, the environmental stuff. The next level is noise is coming from uh, social media and and digital media. That's where I see it. That's that's where I see them adding. I think when I'm done the chapter, that's going to be the primary finding. It's just. You're getting information from so many different sources that you're not able to figure it out. So it is sort of an info glut. Or my favorite word for this is infobesity. I'm not sure who's responsible, but somebody called it. We're an infobese culture, right? There's just so much out there that that noise is making it impossible for anyone who is living in on like has things to do. I mean, it, really, if you have things to do, it's almost impossible to stay on top of stuff. I mean, uh, as soon as I put together the pandemic book, Springer says, so when are you going to write the COVID book? And I said, oh, bleh. And so what I've been doing is just every time, the New York, and every time in the morning I read the New York Times and Washington Post. So every morning I would take articles and start putting it in bookmarks. And I look at these bookmarks sometimes going, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, how am I going to do all of this stuff? You know, and I don't think it's possible. The good argument for all of this, we are getting to a point where in higher education we're going to have to have some revolution, which is going to be where we work as, as functioning pods. In other words, you put together a pod of people, undergrads, grad students, faculty members, and you attack a problem and you attack it together. And... That is the, I think, the only way to, for, for a lot of this to survive. The standalone PhD person in the days of Fred and I was a different world. You know, there was a limited amount of stuff to read because there was only so much stuff at the library, right? And even when you went around the country and picked up little bits and pieces of it, where you were picking up little bits and pieces, the transition to the dissertation was really that difficult if you actually wrote a good proposal. That which is universally true, right? If you write a really good proposal and, and marks to it, you get it done. Now it's it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, uh, I found it 
exhausting with this Zika debate. The Zika debate is huge. There's crap loads of stories here. Not only why the hell isn't it around anymore, or is it around anymore, right? And or and and, and, and this is the problem. And so this noise thing, if true, and if the research that uh, that Kahneman and Sunstein must have put some research together, because that's all he does is research. But I presume they're going to get to a point where it's going to be pretty revolutionary. We're going to kill our students. Or we're, we're killing our students. I mean, we really are. They're just driving them. We're driving them mad. Try to stay on top of all this stuff. I mean, I teach a one course, which is nothing but a persuasion seminar. It lasts an entire semester and covers like the top 15 theories in persuasion. Guess what? There's another 40 or 50 out there. Right? They're not necessarily that inferior. They're just got fewer citations, which is generally what I ended up doing. But, you know, Only just because someone cited a lot doesn't mean, you know, they know what they're doing. Wakefield is incredibly well cited because everyone cites him as they go on to say nasty shit about him. <laughs> right? I mean, so... Citation, which was the, the ruling variable for years, is just even not a good standard. But some of these issues are just too big. I know at Peacock, we're, we hired, a, a, I hired two brand new women under PEP with the provost. I hired two brand new women out of the grant I'm on. And we're tackling some questions on Zoom. We're tackling some questions on um, how... Um, uh, that uh, the, this the diversity issue uh, in science and technology is being dealt with because very few people are talking about uh, the uh, unproductive and um, challenging work environment. Like that component is not in the literature. You know, if I you know, if I if I called you the N word, that's covered in the literature. But if I make your life really miserable. That's not, you know, and so, but these are, they're, these are these issues. I don't think they're wicked because I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the term wicked. Uh, I th think they're sticky, which is a term that Dan Ariely from Duke uses. That they're, they're, you know, they're, it's, it's a little bit between messy and wicked. Wicked requires you to get everybody in the world to work together to solve the problem. I'm, I'm exaggerating. And uh, sticky is is a little softer than that, you know. So I think that that might be a but yeah. You're and I think you're right on noise. Noise is a lot of info blood. It's a lot of info obesity. It's or info obesity. It's a lot of these things. But uh, I'll, you know, if you want to chat with me in about two weeks, I'll be done with the book. <laughs> so we can chat through and figure out how what it really meant. Because uh, like it or not, Kahneman's a big voice. He's, at the Nobel Prize, but a lot of people can say that. We have two more comments on the chat for you, so I just wanted to read it. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go to David Burton, and then I'll get to Jason. Uh, David Burton says, "What about the consensus of experts' fallacy? Journalists and science communicators very commonly present the consensus of specialists as proof of correctness." Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it turns out that if you ask the experts in any field a question about the assumptions of the field, you'll always find a strong consensus. That's, that's as true if you poll astrologers or homeopaths as if you poll dietitians. The problem is that some fields are not so clear-cut, proven studies, climatology, etc. So how can we get communicators and journalists to stop conflating uniformity of opinion among specialists as evidence they are correct? Yeah, that's a derivative of the belief bias. Uh, belief bias. What ends up happening is, um, in that literature, which there's not a hell of a lot, but in that literature of the the, the word consensus is is viewed as sort of a phantom. It doesn't really exist. That my consensus is your consensus. Um, it's often a way for um, experts to hide behind other experts. Um, you know, I mean, let's, let's let's be really blunt. I mean, when you're a full professor and you can't be fired no matter what you do unless you're convicted of felony, pretty much, um, you can say almost anything you want, but as an assistant professor, you're kind of limited to where you can go. 
these young uh, postdocs and these assistant professors who are making their first uh, entry into academia discover really early that you know it's not really a good idea to go up against anybody. And so consensus can be a really interesting tool of power rather than anything else. And um, yeah, I mean, the answers to this is found in a book by Ewer, H-E-U-E-R, and it's on analytics. And what it does is uh, gives you exercises to do instead of drawing a consensus. In other words, these are exercises which will limit the biases because they're tools. One of which, which I'm incredibly comfortable with because I've used it dozens of times, is using the Rand Corporation's Delphi method, which basically turns to folks and says, Jennifer, what do you think are the problems of the world? Question mark. And then we take everything you said, examine it, scrape it, code it, content analyze it, and then we find out what you think. Now, I didn't prime you on this at any. This is completely clean. And we do this for 20 or 30 other experts, and you bring them together, and you really do find out stuff. We did one when, nano, when nanoparticles were first hitting the markets. We said, which nanoparticles are problematic? And they ranked them, and then we compared ranked for all these 30-plus experts, and we were able to predict where the, where the problems were going to be and where the literature was going to be. And it, it got published in I don't know, one of the nano journals that we had. And uh, it's an example of where there's no con consensus isn't there anymore, right? It's not a tool or it's not a, a cudgeon. I mean, they, they're, it's both. But uh, usually you see this with young folk. You know, I mean, I have a beautiful book, which I, which I wrote when I was an assistant professor, and I was informed that I should never publish it until the people in it are dead. <laughs> and uh, we will be publishing it very soon. And it is the testimony from the assembly in the State House in South Carolina over the flag and taking the flag down from on top of the building and putting it in the museum. But it's the actual words of these folks. I mean, I got tape recordings of the entire proceedings from a former student who worked with PBS who got really peed off one day and quit. And she put in her backpack all of the VHS videotapes. I have the only set. They are not recorded. I mean, there's no text of this. In South Carolina, they do not publish the texts of what goes into the assembly unless the person who said it recommends they publish his or her piece. So this is like the only existing thing. That's a good example of why you're an assistant professor and you're sort of like, yeah, you've got to wait a while. Right? I mean, and that that's it could, that's where consensus can be really problematic. Because you can see what how you could easily drag them into the consensus groups because it's safe. At least while you're young, it's incredibly safe. And that's scarily on that yeah, that's unfortunate. Can you wait till those people were dead? They're all dead now, I think, pretty much. They were very old. And that was, what, 20 years ago now? Plus, the guy who co-authored it with me now is a lawyer in Portland. He says, yeah, let's do it. So. so I have another question here for you uh, from Jason Delborn. Jason, do you want to unmute yourself? Sure. Hi, David. Um, thanks for, for the talk. That's a great, great review. Um, I noticed that, you know, it seems like the, the literature about biases is really focused on like individual cognition. Um, and so David's earlier question kind of talked about the, the group fallacy, but are there ways to assemble a group of people, either experts or inexperts, that overcomes some of the biases that you've talked about? Or are there other experiments that try to um, create situations where people can avoid the biases that we know exist? Thanks. Um, there's your yours book on analytics is really good on getting biases out of inexpert audiences. It's not very good on getting biases out of expert audiences. But in expert to expert communication, there's some literature that suggests that the degree of bias the experts have is much lower than the degree of bias the inexperts have because of something to do 
with what happens in the process of becoming an expert. Um, is it education? I'm not sure. That's the easy answer. It, it might be. I don't know. It might be life experience. It might be a whole bunch of things, right? But I think there needs to be a hell of a lot of research on this expert to expert thing. Because, um, you know, I was at the NSF. I did a presentation uh, a few years ago, right before COVID. And it was pretty controversial because that's who I am. And I said, beware of the 30%. I said, the 30% will rue this country because they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in science. They're not interested in numbers. They're interested in just getting through the day. They like the world they're in and they don't want it changed. And they're going to be a big problem. And so what we've been doing is talking at them and telling them they're wrong and that they should believe other things, and that's not working. It seems that the answer is going to have to be not just dealing with the inexperts, but dealing with the experts. Because the trust that belongs to expert audiences has not been increasing. It's been generally decreasing. So people are less confident in the information they're getting from their doctors and their nurses and their pharmacists and their government uh, agents and and the, and the, and the people uh, around them. They're just not, it's, it's not selling. So we have to find a better way of doing this. And experts need to get involved. This trying to exist on a whole different plane from the inexperts isn't working. And we did a study, I'll get some time. We did a study, there's a book out, I can give you the site. We wrote it, it's on organic engagement. And, um, we had, that's on that $1.4 million grant. We did focus groups, but what we did was have um, the standard focus groups done. They were done by Jennifer, which was in Minnesota, and her students. And the other focus groups were done in South Carolina, and not at South Carolina, but in other locations. But those focus groups were, given, were done what we call organically and inorganically. Inorganically, we brought the public to a location, and we did something with them. Organically, we went to where they already met and dealt with them there, like in church basements. We were much more successful. The data was much stronger in terms of developing consensus organically. If you went where they were, and because it's it was less intrusive, it was you know you you bring them to a fake location and you're just going you know we're obviously putting you in a study. We want you to say certain things, keep us happy. Survey effect, survey effect, survey effect, survey effect. Right? It's just the data gets. That's one of the things we're, we'll probably develop further. Well, we have two minutes left, and, and just to kind of piggyback on that, there was a, a comment, a question from Fred saying, As a citizen, why would you trust any expert information <laughs> on wearing masks or anything else? So I just wanted to bring up that question. If what was the beginning of it? So as a citizen, why would you have <laughs> any expert information on wearing masks or anything else? It kind of seems to kind of go also with the question that, that Jason uh, was asking. And yeah, well, I think the reason... Expert and expert. Well, there's some people who believe that experts know what they're talking about. They were, That works out well. There are some people who are informed by people they really trust. Mom, dad. Oh, I don't know, preacher. You know, Doctor. Pharmacists are up there too, you know. Uh, there are some people who have direct experience. Um, you know, they may have had masks used in other settings. Um, there are some people who uh, experienced an epiphany. Uh, they got COVID. You know, they don't want someone else to get COVID. But Fred, you're right. You're right because. The answer is going to have to be some hybrid approach involving inexpert and expert audiences being engaged by a unique set of communicators. And I am like Dr. Fauci, but he's still jargon, jargony. Uh, he, you know, he, he has his his own problems with dealing with the public. And you know, I mean. The big problem science has always had with the public is science is science. Science says we do stuff, and when we learn better stuff, we change how we feel. Public doesn't like that. Public wants to hear this is true and this is not true. They, they're not into the gray. And whenever they hear uncertainty, most of them interpret it as incompetence. And that ain't bad. And then, Fred, 
we had a president who uh, four years ago just, but not four years ago, for the last four years, trampled through science. You know, I remember we could write a grant on climate change for four years. I submitted them as extreme weather events, but still didn't they get funded. Right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, boy, this is a rough time. And I hope we get through it. And uh, not I can move back, you know. My family started in Canada. I guess I can go back up there. I believe uh, the grain belt will end up there eventually anyway, so they'll be doing quite well after uh, the climate shifts continue. <laughs> Thank you. That'll be the next uh, your next colloquium <laughs> topic that we'll uh, hope to hear from you about again. And and at this point, we are out of time. So thank cool. you very much, Dr. Thanks. David Rubin.